This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Walkheaders? Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. I'm still amazed about how many processes across the industry actually saw on paper. So whether it's paper tickets, invoices, things like that. Well, Liquid Frameworks was probably the first company on the scene to actually tackle this problem. So Travis Prigi joined us this week to talk about how he identified the problem whenever he was consulting for Schlumberger uh, and how the market demand really transformed their field effects platform from just field ticketing and invoicing to a full ended in field servicing suite of products. Really, really cool stuff. Really enjoyed it. We actually were in between our old office and our new office. And so we didn't have our studio set up yet. So we actually went to his place. It was awesome. Uh, great views. Some of the best views in all of Houston. So we really enjoyed it. Uh, before we get to the episode, let's take a few minutes to run through our TPH Energy Insight of the Week. So Deanna Zhang over at TPH has sent out a recap of 2020 in their e-tech newsletter this week. We want to dive into a few of the bullet point takeaways from 2020 as it pertains to startups. So the first one is never take capital for granted. And I would 100% agree with a private capital shortage throughout 2020. Companies that raised a lot of money in either late 2020 or early 2020 really benefited the most by having enough runway to really kind of weather the storm, weather the pandemic. And companies who are planning to raise kind of later in the year were kind of just left out in the cold, honestly. And so we've seen some of these companies that had to go under or they had to just lay off a significant amount of people in order to extend the runway. So it's definitely was challenging for a lot of startups. And so I think the lesson there is to be able to raise capital when you can, not when you absolutely need to. The analogy that comes to mind for me is that you fill your canteen when you're next to water, not when you're thirsty. You know, So if you have investors that are knocking, you can't really always anticipate things like a pandemic. You know, there could be a COVID-21, uh, you know, God forbid that happens, but you never know. So if you've got an investor capital there, it's something to definitely consider. Second bullet point is who backs you matters. We've talked about this on the podcast for a long time, but companies that have investors that are less flexible, um, particularly in times when there's a pandemic, it's just really, really, really trying on the on the startups. You know, they need to be able to reach back into their pockets and continue to invest in you, particularly in something that is is completely outside of your control, right? Yeah, and I think you know this kind of reminds me of a story of a founder that I'm friends with. When you talk about finding the right capital or taking money from the right backers, you know, they got in a bind. They'd raised a bunch of money and they were at a, a really tough point in their business, and they went back to their investors for some more capital and some of their capital providers were willing to work with them. And one of their biggest backers wasn't. And it definitely wasn't an issue of they didn't have deep enough pockets. They just didn't want to cut a check and can't get into the specifics of this deal, but that investor actually had a really sweet deal and had they made had like the biggest return on yeah, all the investors. Yeah, made, <laughs> yeah, made all their money back and they were just being stingy and really just not there for the startup when they needed them most. So I think that's really important. And then, you know, also everyone kind of looks at it as a rite of passage to raise VC capital when you have a startup. And it's like for us at Wildcatters, you know, if we're raising capital, our business isn't really a fit for VCs. And that's actually been a challenge for us because it is hard, you know, to go out and find high net worth individuals and family offices, but you really got to find the capital provider that matches your business and 
can also partner up with you, you know, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, you know, whether it was, um, CSL or Cottonwood Ventures or any of these guys, it's a business relationship and capital is a commodity. You want more value outside of the capital. What else are they providing besides capital? And also, you know, back on that first point that you talked about too, you know, I think there was a shortage of capital for startups at one point, but now we're back to where there's so much liquidity in the market from federal stimulus money. And you've had some large exits as there's a lot of private capital sitting on the sidelines. So if you're going to raise money for a business, you know, time to do it is now. And like you said, that window may shut and not be open forever. Yeah. So if you've already raised, say, a seed and you're like, oh, I'll do my series A in 2022. If you have the money available in 21, take it. That's probably the best advice we got for you. So um, also on that note, Cottonwood Ventures uh, is now rebranded as Montrose Lane. So uh, we released a little video about that the other day. Uh, huge congrats to those guys. They've actually just closed their their latest round of funding, 64 million bucks. Uh, we've had pretty much their entire portfolio uh, on the, the show at one point in time. So huge congrats to those guys. We love y'all. Thanks for all the support. And let's get right into the episode. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Well and Gas Stars podcast. We are not in the studio and we're not remote. Where are we at? Yeah, we're at Liquid Frameworks. You guys got a really nice office. We have Travis here. Hey you guys, guys got a nice office, but no one here during the uh, the, the COVID climate. So how's that? You know, how's that feeling? <laughs> well, it's very quiet for one, as you can see. <laughs> it's a little desolate. Uh, I wish it, this was on video. I'm going to have to like, take a photo and we'll post it. But this is like the sickest office. Yeah, you guys got a really nice office. I like this. May have to do a tour sometime for YouTube so people can check it out. So well, tell us what, what is Liquid Frameworks? What do you yeah. guys do? Yeah. Yeah. So Liquid Frameworks is a software as a service provider and we build and provide the field effects product suite, which is specifically engineered for the upstream and downstream oil and gas service provider market. It does the whole quote to cash workflow process, everything from price book management to quoting, to schedule and dispatch of resources, to ticketing out in the field. So during doing the service ticket at the well site, and then all your operational data forms, asset management, and then we finish it out with time cards and invoicing. So reporting against all that runs offline at the well site, gets it back to servers that are in the cloud. So it's the whole, the whole uh, shooting yeah. match. So you guys are really, if I'm not mistaken, you're t- trying to take approach of an end-to-end solution right. to where it's not just a field ticketing. Specifically yeah. for the office. Right. Yeah. Guys, yeah. It yeah. started originally as really just field ticketing and forms. But what I found quickly as I went and demoed it to different service providers, they looked at it and said, well, that's really great. But we also have a scheduling problem and we have to collect time cards. And like it just kept growing and growing really by demand from the customers. And uh, more than anything, but yeah, it's, it's really end to end. I mean, it's a, it's a huge product suite. You, you don't have to roll it all out. You can take it in chunks if you just want to do ticketing, but it's, it's totally end to end. Yeah. So let's talk about your background and you talked about the early days of building the product and how it's evolved since then. Tell us about before liquid frameworks, you know, what's your background and how did you stumble across this problem and solution? Yeah. So my whole background is all software development. So I started building software Believe it or not, when I was a little kid, like sixth grade. Okay. So I started writing software for for small businesses in the town that I grew so up. So how in. did that? Yeah. So tell us how that, yeah. that came about. You know, how'd you start developing at six? For some odd reason, uh, I wanted a computer really badly in fourth grade, and my parents bought me one for Christmas, uh, or should I say, Santa Claus brought me one, and <laughs> I literally like read the book on basic programming cover to cover, and just was fascinated with the idea 
of being able to control this machine and get it to do what I wanted to. I mean, it was an old school Commodore 64 running CPM operating system. So oh, don't date yourself like that. Yeah. Come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's old school. This is the 80s. Right? <laughs> Should have seen what I was wearing back then. But uh, no, it was a cool machine and uh, I did a lot with it. And so I just grew up programming as opposed to a lot of my friends were gaming and stuff like that. And then I got in, a, in a high school, wrote uh, my dad's what really was kind of like field ticketing, but it was for delivery of, uh, my dad had an alcoholic beverage distribution company that would sell to hotels, restaurants, and bars, but they would do like delivery tickets of booze to bars and they'd have to go get it signed just like the company man signing the ticket. Right. So I wrote this in high school. It was written in Pascal and, uh, my, my dad's business just loved it. And literally it's still running today. Although my dad's long since, since sold that business. So, Got into that, went to AM, got a degree in computer engineering and just continued to program like crazy. And uh, then ended up working for a software development company that was consulting software, like not a software software company, but we were building custom software for companies. And we were focused on the um, dot-com space. We were funded by Benchmark and Austin Ventures. Well, as you know, the dot-com space didn't fare well. So we changed our focus to building software for global 2000 companies. And one of the businesses that... I ended up doing a lot of work for with Schlumberger. And unfortunately, the company I was working for ended up being a casualty of the dot-com space. So I went back to Schlumberger and said, hey, I know you still need this thing built. I still need a job. And so does this little <laughs> team that you know, was working on it. So would you let us stand up a new little consulting company and we'll just we'll just build you this wireline configuration product for you. We'll do it cheaper. And to my surprise, I said, yeah. So started that consulting company in 2001. And then through that process, I just learned all about uh, field ticketing and just what's going on in the field. Did a lot of consulting work for Apache Oil and Gas as well and some other guys like McDermott and just saw this ticketing process that was paper. I mean, paper and Excel over and over again in the field. And I just thought, that's crazy. Like, it's so inefficient and it's so prone to errors. Like, and, and I would ask other companies about it and they were all like validating that. And Schlumberger had us custom building some stuff for them to do that exact thing. So like, well, I'm going to stand up a company and that's all we're going to do. We're going to build a field ticketing system, go out and, and market it. And so I did that in 05 and I went to a lot of mid-level type service providers and showed them this demo and idea. And they're like, that's a great idea. You should totally build it out. So I totally built it out, spent like two years building this product. I'm coding half of it. I've got a handful of developers coding the other part of it. Really, I shouldn't say a handful, really one. <laughs> so it's just me and Steve. <laughs> Another guy, Roy. It's a small hand. Yeah, <laughs> very small hand. So me and Roy are like coding this thing up. And then I go back to all those companies like, hey, I got this thing. You want to buy it now? And they're like, it's awesome, but we're not buying it. I'm like, why not? They're like, well, we don't want to be the first. I'm like, okay. So I've spent a while trying to get a first customer. So eventually got a first customer in 2007. And then 08 came. And you know what happened in 08. So diversified to downstream in 08 and started selling to companies that were doing work at the refineries. And then just slowly, I mean, just literally, I mean, I wasn't taking any venture money at this stage. It was just really just me bootstrapping from my consulting company money over to this. And I mean, then, was this liquid frameworks at the time or was it, or is this it the was consulting frameworks? Okay. No, no, so no, you, it so it actually, five, it became liquid frameworks. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So from the ground up liquid frameworks, just me hired one person, then just totally grew it from there. And then eventually took venture money in 2012, uh, converted to the Salesforce platform, got a management team in place to help me with it. And it's, it's just grown since. So the take-ups are really good. I mean, in the early days, everybody was doing e-invoicing back in 2005. E-field ticketing was not something that people were adopted yet, but it was a hot topic and people were willing to talk about it. So it got me in the door. Like nobody was doing that back then. 
is a real differentiator. It's still remarkable how much paper still oh, exists in the field today. It's mind blowing. Well, I mean, like it's a huge, it's still the land this, of opportunity. Totally, I dealt yeah. with this problem firsthand being out in the field as a service hand. You know, I'd be running wireline. It's like, why the hell am I filling this out with a pen and paper, you know, on, on a notebook? And then I go over to InVenture and with InVenture, I always laugh because you know, I'm traveling across the Western hemisphere and I had to take my computer and a mobile printer with me Yeah, and I would write up my ticket in Excel and then I would print it out on my mobile printer and then take it into the company. Man, I was like, this is like, it's crazy. you know, I'm a forward thinking guy. And so you can just imagine how salty I am this entire right. time while I'm doing it. I'm like, this is bullshit. I'm going to spend my time doing this. What's but- crazy about the paper, the printer, you mentioned the printer and that like hits home for me because we still have some operators that are our customers' customers that demand a paper ticket, even though we're going out with an iPad or an Android device or a Windows tablet, whatever they're using. And we're doing it electronically, but the company man says, no, I still need the paper ticket. I want to stamp that that ticket. And we've got a feature in our product that will take the stamp off of a white piece of paper, superimpose it on the electronic ticket, but they still want that paper. So they'll bring Why? It. Do you know why? Like, what's I, that, what's I know why. Just, I mean, just the idea it's, of the rubber stamp to me. It's proof of delivery from the company, man, that they want to see that in AP, that they have that encoded invoice. But we have it all. It's crazy. Like you look at something like DocuSign, it's got like blockchain in the back end that nobody knows about it. And so like, you know exactly who, what, when, where signed something. And it's, it's a much better piece of data than a signature. Signatures are really just the illusion of safety. Everybody like <laughs> banks, surprise, banks actually don't check signatures on anything because they can't. And it's not anything that's enforceable, right? And it's so just it's, the way it's, it's always it's, been done. If you it's so antiquated. If you want to yeah. hear a painful story, so when I was working out on the Eagleford, we'd get done running a stage job, and I'm not going to say which EMP it was, but we'd have to drive two hours north to Shiner to drop off the ticket in their drop box at the field office and then drive back down to Victoria. Literally had to drive two hours out of the way to drop a ticket off and get I, it signed. I've <laughs> heard those stories. Like That's a commonplace story. I've heard of having drivers that their whole job is literally just to take packets of tickets and drive them around, <laughs> find the company man that's moved on to the next rig. And it is, I have, and, a, and I have a friend that she's stood up a service. That's just that like oh, her, wow. she's like a bounty hunter for oh. tickets. Yeah. And she just drives around West yeah, Texas. Shout out, shout out Petra. If you're listening. <laughs> so I find your background interesting because you mentioned that you went to A&M and so I was expecting oh, a petroleum engineer from A&M and you didn't go there for that, but you end up at Schlumberger and you said that you were developing a wireline software system for them. Right. Is that so correct? So what was that? Right. So that was a, that was a project that we built in their R and D group that was geared to configure a wireline job and then price it. So you would actually have a salesperson come in or the customer could come in and would go through and say, Hey, I'm doing a wireline job. Here's where I'm doing it. Here are the objectives that I'm trying to achieve. So I'm trying to determine lithology, rock properties, formation, evaluation. And then you'd answer a few questions like, you know, what's the uh, TVD? What's the measure depth? Is it, um, what are the logging conditions? And it would then go out and figure out, well, here are the Slumberjade tools that you need to actually use to achieve those objectives. And by the way, since you're XYZ operator, we have your contract on file and here's what it's going to cost. And so it was this great project that sort of did something that was way ahead of its time. I mean, this was in the early 2000s. And so, yeah, it didn't get a lot of traction simply because at the time, and that was really early stage stuff. So I said probably just timing issue. Timing was bad. Right. Yeah. Timing wasn't super great, but we took it from there and actually made it do not only, um, Fireline, but it would do also cementation jobs. It would also do artificial lift. So it had the ability to scale beyond that. But it was a really nice, uh, really nice, nice project that uh, really 
I kind of learned a lot too. So, you know, coming from outside of oil and gas, you know, you mentioned all these technical terms, you know, talking about TVD, measure depth, and obviously, you know, you had to learn all these things as you're going in the industry. Was that difficult for you to learn how to build a product? So I, I just get, I'm intrigued by this topic of developers coming in and building products for oil and gas since it's such a technical industry and there's so many nuances with the operations. Was it difficult for you to develop a product for Schlumberger in the early days when you didn't have all this implied knowledge of oil and gas? Yeah. So I, a couple things are, I didn't have that knowledge coming in. I had just to barely scratch the surface of, it, surface of it, more from the financial side, from some work that I did at Apache related to AFE reporting, that kind of thing. But I was lucky enough to have some subject matter experts that were actual engineers from Schlumberger that had designed a lot of their tools. And one guy in particular who was an um, old wireline engineer, he'd been with the company for 25, 30 years, and kind of took me under my wing, his wing and, and would be sort of a knowledge source about domain information and was free in sharing just really the details of exactly what you're describing. And I found it fascinating. Like the first time he explained to me a measurement model drilling technology, I was just sort of blown away by it that you could get all this data up through the mud and stuff. I was just like blown away. Yeah. I was fascinated <laughs> by it. I thought, this is crazy. These guys are doing this. Imagine what kind of technology that they're they're building in the future with this thing and what they've got out there. I mean, based on what I, he's talking about, they did, you know, 10 years ago. It was incredible. So I just gravitated towards it and just sucked as much information that I could out of people that were willing to sit and talk to me about it. Cause I mean, I've had some people who are, you know, they don't want to, some of those things are rudimentary to guys like you who do that every day and came from it. But so they don't want to talk about it or really waste yeah. your time explaining it. But <laughs> like, I'd sit there and listen to anybody. And once you had the advent of YouTube and stuff came, came around, like, I just would sit there and voraciously consume all these videos that these operators would make and service providers would make about their tools and how they operate. I mean, it truly is a fascinating business. Up until we came along, those are the only oil and gas videos. Yeah. On YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, I, I know several people in the tech industry and oil and gas that came from outside of oil and gas and every single person says the same thing. They're always fascinated it's by fascinating. it. And, I think, you know, since I haven't worked in the field in a couple of years now, you know, I spent a decade out there. You're and you rusty kind of, now. Yeah, I'm getting rusty. Um, but you live in this bubble to where it's just kind of like everyday knowledge to you. But if you actually step back and look at it from a macro point of view, we do some really cool stuff on a, a physics level of what we've accomplished downhole and the technology that we've developed. And, um, you know, I think, you know, people should understand that, Hey, people outside of the industry are interested in that. And even though it's common for us, like other people find it fascinating and we should teach them and it's, tell them about it. It's not only fascinating from the finance, uh, the technology side of it, but I find it fascinating from the finance side of it in that all this technology is out there. It's incredible what it does. It's super expensive. I mean, drilling a well is obviously not cheap, especially once you go offshore, but somehow I'm able to only pay barely three bucks a gallon at the, at the station. <laughs> yeah. And it's been that price for a long, long yeah. time. The prices are going up. So it, it's pretty amazing to me in general, the industry. I mean, it's, yeah. the technology is beyond fascinating. So you said that when you went to market with Liquid Frameworks, you focused on downstream and I'm not as familiar with downstream as I am upstream. What were the use cases in the early days of downstream and what are the use cases today? Yeah. So initially when I first went to market, it was upstream. So at the well site, and that's really the overwhelming majority of our customers today. But in 08, I went to downstream, like you're saying, and the use cases turned out to be very similar, which is I have a, I have a field supervisor who goes with a crew 
and a bunch of equipment to a refinery site to do some type of maintenance work or it could be some kind of repair work. So a good example would be uh, you've got a refinery that has a, a heat exchanger and that heat exchanger has you know 100 tubes that run through it. Those heat exchangers have to be cleaned. You've got to run this high pressure um, nozzle through it. It's a, called a hydroblaster. Could run as high as like 20,000 PSI. I mean, they're incredibly dangerous tools, but you got to run that through there. Well, that person that's running it and you've got a crew of people, he's got his hydroblaster piece of equipment. He's got all these nozzles and flanges and hoses that he charges for. So it's not just, you know, write up a service ticket that's got one item on it. They're complex service tickets. It's got a complex price book behind it, just like you have with a wireline price book. And so you've got a crew of people with equipment going to a, um, could be a dangerous, remote, rugged work environment, just like a well site. And they're doing a complex service job that's not done in a matter of an hour or two. I mean, it could take them days, in some cases, weeks for a turnaround. And they've got to document that with a service ticket, which is just like a field ticket. And they got to do operational safety forms like a tailgate safety or safety meeting. They got to do surveys and stuff like that, just like you have a JSA at a well site. So they're literally doing the same stuff, but it's just at a different venue. And they don't always have network connectivity just like at a well site. So they, they fill out a paper ticket historically or an Excel spreadsheet or whatever they're doing. And in our world, you know, we bring a tablet with an app on it and they're able to do it all offline and syncs it up. So it's, it's literally, it's the same business process, but it's a different kind of job, but so many similarities. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's great. It's, it's another market I can go after. <laughs> so did you guys stay in like the, the one-off maintenance space and in, in, in downstream or did you guys get into the plan turnaround space? Cause there's a lot of money that's in that, right. but there's also a lot of players in that who specialize in just, you know, the plan turnarounds. Cause I mean, that could, that could cost millions and millions and millions of dollars every day, every day that they're off. Yes. Line, right. So, so we do a lot of the one-off maintenance and then we do have some customers that do turnaround work as well and they'll manage their, large, you know, 100, 200 person group of people that are out there at the turnaround tracking all their time. I mean, that's a, that's a, a logistical nightmare. Yeah. It's a logistical. They have people that are literally their job is called timekeeper and, and they're just recording the time for everybody and getting time cards and, and timesheets in place and accurizing that and reconciling it against, um, there's a gate log that kind of all the refineries use that you see out there and reconciling it against that. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a lot of just logistics and management that go into that, but it's it's been a good industry for us. Uh, it it plays well with what we have, technology and functional wise. This episode is brought to you by our good buddies over at Well Database. Now, most of you know how expensive oil and gas data providers in this space can be. I mean, you can easily spend a couple hundred grand a year, but not at Well Database. Their plans range from free to a thousand dollars per month per user for the really really large guys. You know we're startup guys ourselves. We're not exactly flush with cash, so they've kind of been our go-to oil and gas data provider for years now. They got production data, completions data, frac data, permitting logs, and a ton more. Then on top of that, you're able to answer just about any question you have with their built-in analytics layered on top. But wait, you know there's more. They've also got really, really super simple built-in decline curve analysis tool. So you're not having to export from Well Database and upload it into, say, an Aries or PhD Win. You can just do it all right there in Well Database. It's super simple. So why go anywhere else? It's cheap, it's affordable, and it's super powerful, trusted by us and a lot of people in the industry. So go check them out at welldatabase.com. Now let's get right back to the episode. So you mentioned that 
you know, the original concept for Liquid Frameworks was this ticketing system. And then as soon as you started getting feedback loops from customers, you started evolving the product and building it out. And now you do it from end to end. You mentioned some things like asset management and things like that. What does that actually mean? Yeah. You know, it's easy for me to wrap my head around, oh, we're digitalizing tickets and making the process better. But what are the other components? Right. So it starts with the price book. And for us, when we say price book, we're just talking about the list of items, the organization of items, be it services, be it um, uh, labor, it could be supplies, equipment, whatever you're using to deliver the job, but priced according to the operator or the EMP company's contract. But there are all these mechanics in price books where it could be bundles of items, could be conditional pricing, could be hierarchies of price books. So all that comes together in this very complicated price book that we can model, but the field supervisor, field engineer, when he's writing up his ticket, all that shield, he doesn't have to worry about all those calculations. It just does it automatically for him. So there's the price book piece and then there's the quoting piece. So company man wants a quote for something, be a wireline job, cement, whatever. So there's quoting out, which looks a lot like a service ticket, frankly. So it's, it's a quote like you might be thinking, but it's going against this complex price book. And there's a workflow associated with it. And then you get into something like asset management, which is really preventative maintenance of the asset. So if you're a solids control company, you've got centrifuges, you've got shale shakers, all these types of big pieces of equipment that they've got to be maintained on some schedule. And so in those cases, you're tracking all that preventative maintenance, kicking out work orders that go to uh, shop maintenance personnel that need to do certain types of work on it. And then you get into things like our schedule and dispatch module, which is after the quote's been won, well, now you've got to put that wireline job or that solids control job onto a schedule. I mean, I go into a lot of offices where literally the walls have been converted into these that's panel wireline. That's how our wireline shop they, is. You'd walk right. in there and you'd have a, you know, one of those cork boards yeah. and you just have them pinned up there yeah. and you'd see where you were going that's that right. day and what you were doing. That's exactly <laughs> right. So we're, we're replacing that with something that if the cleaning crew comes in the night before and wipes it out, you know, you're not going, where do I go? Again? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so we're, we're making that in a digital form where you actually can see that whiteboard on yeah, the so screen. Yeah, so it's a project management tool. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can think of it as kind of a project management tool. Exactly. So that's the scheduling piece where you're getting the right people, the right equipment to the job, qualifications, certifications, all that kind of good stuff. And then you move into something like time cards, which is really straightforward. It's just literally, you know, an app that's on your phone that lets you enter your time. Could be billable time, could be non-billable time, could be vacation time, shop time, training time, whatever. So you're giving the people even beyond the field supervisor, you know, the crew that's out there, the ability to do an electronic time card, PTO requests, all that kind of good stuff. And then invoicing, you know, invoice, just invoicing, wrapping up tickets, shooting over at SAP or wherever it needs to go. Yeah. So I have some questions for you. You know, it sounds like you guys, 15 years you've been around? Yeah, 15, yeah, 16 15 years. 15 years, yeah. years and v- VC back for mm-hmm. roughly 12 years now or so? VC back starting in 2012. Oh, you started in 2012. Two th- so eight, yeah. So eight, eight all years. Angel, and, Angel and just... And me, my consultant, just bootstrapping from 05 until about uh, 2012. VC, local Houston VC firm, uh, Houston Ventures, Chip Davis, fantastic yep. venture partner. No more. Good guy. Yeah, yeah, great yep. guy. And then, uh, and then in 18, we ended up uh, PE backed in 18. So sold, sold majority uh, control to a P firm in the awesome. Bay Area. Yeah. So, you know, you've seen 
I mean, how many downturns since three. Oh, five? Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> three. Three. Yeah, so. It's, it all blends together. Yeah. It's just, it's it's just one gigantic downturn. <laughs> yeah, you know, I graduated high school in 08, and that's when I got into the Wilfo was 09, so right, you know, right before Shell kicked off. And so I've been there too, but you know, I wasn't running a company. But um, what's it like running a SaaS business and a cyclical business you know, I don't think I've got the opportunity to like sit down and talk to someone that's actually um, grown a business through all of them and survived and thrived. So tell us, you know, what's it like? Let's let's frame that up a little bit, a little bit more because this year has sucked so bad. And we're obviously talking to startup founders daily and some have had their best year. Most are having the worst year ever. Right. So kind of through that lens of like, Maybe what is some of the advice? Like, how have you guys survived? And what's some of your advice to some of the other founders? So, as you guys know, with the downturns in the oil oil and gas industry, they don't last for extended periods of time. So, the way I've looked at it, and, and I have my consulting company, remember, since 2000, 2001, really. And so, we had that downturn, too. So, really, technically, I've been through four now. But they're not these long four-year, five-year kind of troughs that you go through. So my perspective is they're usually about maybe 18 months and then things start looking up and getting more reasonable. So for me, I've always made sure that I have enough cash reserve runway to weather that type of a downturn for, let's say, an 18-month downturn to not have to change my operational capabilities so that I can at least stay the course with the original vision that I believe in is going to ultimately be successful so that I don't have to go through some radical, huge change and go, well, gosh, we need to change and go service the uh, food equipment industry or something that's not as cyclical. So the first thing I would say is if you can stay the course and be committed to your vision and what you're trying to do, I mean, that to me is, has, that's worked for me. Yeah. I, I don't know if it works for everybody, but it's worked for me to, to say, Hey, cause in 08, when oil just went totally crazy, it's not that we left energy. We went to downstream, which is still heavy, heavy energy. I mean, refineries are impacted by the downturns too, but I just felt like staying committed, especially in the 16 stuff too, where I was like, we're just going to stay committed, keep doing what we're doing. It's, it pays off its value. Companies need our product even more in the downturn than ever, simply because, you know, we're recapturing unbilled revenue. We have a whole nother module that I mentioned that essentially is a CPQ module that ensures that you're charging for exactly what you need to charge for and they get paid faster. So like they need our product more than ever in the downturn. So I feel like staying committed is the right thing to do for us too. The other thing that has helped a lot is that in the SaaS world and enterprise software like this, the contracts, they're not month to month. So it's not that customers are just paying month to month. They're yearly contracts with three-year terms. And so, and some of them are five-year terms. So in those cases, you know, you've got some runway that you can, you can plan for. If we didn't have that, then it might be a very different yeah, situation. Yeah, that allows you to lock in some revenue. Right. And there's actually um, services, like I saw someone from Silicon Valley posting about it on Twitter the other day. I think it's called pipe something i'll have to look but yeah I think it's, it's a, just pipe is it just pipe yeah pipe. it's a new form of financing it, it kind of reminds me of factoring that's what i was gonna say it sounds like yeah, factoring. yeah, yeah. it's kind yeah. of like factoring uh -huh. but um allows you to take your recurring revenue and um, get liquidity out of it and so i find that really you know as a valuable tool for SaaS companies so let's talk about the future of liquid frameworks because you know as we have this conversation i'm a big blockchain fanboy and i think about blockchain 
blockchain in these applications. Has it ever been something that I think it's still too early, you know, just kind of like how Schlumberger's wireline product was too early. I think blockchain could still be too early. Do you ever think about implementing that in these, in these products that you're building? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of application for what we do. I think it's very interesting from the perspective of being able to model our contracts, our, our price books, if you will, through smart contracts and the blockchain tracking for transactions. I think it bodes well for um, fluids management, for, for water hauling, that kind of thing. I don't totally have my head around how we would translate that to the more complex service like cementation or like wireline or completions fracturing, that kind of thing. I feel like there's something there. I just, I don't have my my yeah. finger on it yeah. exactly yet. I think it, you know, like even simple use cases like Jake brought up with um, DocuSign or whichever electronic sign, uh, signing provider there is that uses blockchain on the back end. You know, we talk about this whole rubber stamp issue. It's like, no, I need a piece of paper to rubber stamp, to, you know, verify that it's me. It's like, that's an easy use case. Anybody can take that stamp and rubber you stamp should, it, right? You should have right. <laughs> user ID and you should be able to give your electronic signature and that should be verified. And like you can do it through like, I mean, think about like one, like my, my phone opens with my face these days. Like why can't that, why can't <laughs> right. that be like, boom, done. Right. Like you're a hundred percent verified yeah. that it's you. Right. But also, you know, you know, you look at DocuSign and I think that those applications are the best. We literally, we just, we were talking to data gumbo the other day about this and it's like, no one gives a shit about the technology or the protocols, you know, no one cares about how the internet's built. They care about, they can go to Google and they type in something sure. and, and you know, the blockchain applications have to be built that same way to where the user doesn't know or even care about the blockchain. It's just, you guys know like, Hey, this is trusted and, and verified and you can communicate that to your customers. But yeah, I, I look at it in the supply chain and logistics and I look at it between, you know, OFS and EMPs being able to transact together in a verified manner. It just it makes a lot of sense, but it's just one of those things if the timing's right. Yeah. I just, I, I have not had an opportunity yet to kind of figure out how do we solve it for some of the more complex service lines. The other thing that has been a little bit of a um, challenge is that how does it work in the case of a well site that has no connectivity? So what happens if I'm trying to get proof of delivery and get it out verified on the blockchain and everything right there at the well site? And maybe it's something you have to do later, you know, post job or something, but yeah. uh, you know, the offline connectivity, connectivity is always, a, yeah, that's a problem. Existence. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a hundred percent that we find that to be the case anymore. I mean, we get a lot of connectivity out there, the well site here and there, but it's still a pretty significant chunk where you're out there working offline and um, you know, it's a real problem we have to solve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's way better than even five years ago in terms of connectivity, but yeah, you know, still long ways to go. Do you guys kind of keep it on the topic of what y'all are doing in the future? I mean, I look at this platform and you know, if you look at clean tech, you know, whether it's solar windmills, it seems like they would have all these same issues to where, you know, you have service crews going out there. Do you guys ever plan on scaling into those verticals? Yeah. So we're looking at that. I started looking at that, <clears throat> excuse me, earlier this year. And um, what I found is that that's almost more of an asset management problem where they're tracking those assets. These huge wind turbines obviously have a lot of components um, that they've got to do maintenance on. And then the service crews that are going out there might not always be third party. It might be owner operated service crews, which is fine. It's, it seems like it might be more of 
uh, a fit for our asset management project product, pro- possibly for our module and asset management. But it's definitely something we're looking at. Uh, wind turbine and solar seems to be kind of the obvious space. So we're literally going through an effort in Q1 where we try and study that space a little bit deeper and see if there are any product fit issues. Because for me, like product fit is is huge. Like we want to be able to go in and make sure that the product fits exactly the use case and it's going to do what it needs to do, can be extensible if needed, but it really, really has got to be good product fit. So we're, we've got this effort that we're launching with our product management group in January that's solely focused on looking at those two spaces to see, you know, what do we need from a product perspective, if anything? I mean, we may not need anything. So they're charged with that. And there's there's a lot of opportunity um, probably beyond solar and, and wind that we could probably look at. But you know, there's a huge space there. Like the new administration, there's just, they're going to pour a ton of money into that. So there's probably yeah. a lot of, lot of opportunity. Yeah. I mean, we covered a topic the other day on the energy roundup where Bloomberg put out a report that said something like $11 trillion is going to be invested over the next couple of decades. So a ton of money going into that space. And like all the SPACs are primarily taken out by yeah. EVs and renewables <laughs> right now, which is, yeah. it's, it's interesting to see how that's going to play out as well. But, you know, going back to your comment, you made a comment about, surviving the downturns and the cyclical nature of the business by refocusing you guys want into downstream. I mean, you see a lot of these land, um, SAS software and oil and gas, they're starting to focus on solar and they're finding success there. You know, I mean, solar is a huge land play and they deal with, you know, these land products are almost hundred percent applicable to the solar industry. So you see some oil and gas tech companies are starting to find, okay, Hey, here's a spot that we can focus on, um, to hold us over, you know, until oil and gas recovers. So I think that, you know, I don't know how many use cases there are for other types of techs, but getting really creative in how you use your technology to generate some revenue and, you know, weather the storm until it turns around, I think it's important. Yeah. They have the same, I'm going to, go out on a limb and say they probably have very similar use cases where they've got to go do maintenance out there. Uh, it's probably similar to our downstream customers, I would guess. But in the construction phase, there's probably also some similar. Yeah, I was uh, going to say like with the solar farm, I mean, they have to go out there and clean the panels and it sounds just like the use case you said in the, right, the refineries, right? Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. Right. you know, if that's done by third party, then it seems like there'd definitely be a use case there. So what do you guys, you know, how is... 2020 affected you and what have the challenges been obviously you know of working remote and shifting into that with uh, you guys have 60 about 63 yeah. So, yeah so how did you guys manage that and how are how are things going in terms yeah. of working remote <laughs> so we we've been in this building for a long time i guess 10 10 years now but we've historically been on the fourth floor so we literally re-signed our lease in October of 19. And then like a few weeks, <laughs> a few few months later, you know, this thing. So you got the right. penthouse suite and right. then you don't even get to enjoy it with the team. Right. Not only that, we got the nice long lease that we got to commit to. Yeah. Keep paying that bill. But uh, no, I mean, I would say for us, you know, how has it impacted us? There are certain groups in the company that it's just totally been, it's been no big deal. You know, a lot of the engineering development, QA, that kind of thing, like they can operate totally no problem. I'd say for sales and marketing, it's been a little bit more challenging simply because, you know, they want to be in the office and be at customer side, be in front of customers and customers want to be here. So yeah, deals happen face to face, right? I mean, that's the business That's right. That's right. So that's been a little bit of a challenge. Um, You know, for us, from a performance perspective, uh, I'm I'm really happy to report that we'll we will con- we'll have a good year. Uh, it will will still grow, but we won't grow at the level that we usually grow. You know, usually we're 33 percent kind of growth company, so 
yeah, we won't grow like that, but we'll be in the twenties and, and it'll still be a good year. We'll come close to hitting our, our original plan, our original numbers. And, um, you know, I would say that given what's taken place in the broader global market it's and outside guys, of your control. Yeah. I mean, those things, control, I mean, they're, who could have predicted, right? So given what's taken place, I would say we're going to do really well. You know, we come in at 93% of plan, that kind of thing. Then you know, I'm going to be elated. Yeah. It'd be really good. I think that's something to be excited about for yeah. sure. You know, yeah. I think 2020, everyone's focused on survival. So yeah, you can I not think, only just survive, you can grow. I mean, I think right. you're, <laughs> you're doing better than most. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to the durability of the business. I think it speaks to the realness, the the validity of the problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, if, if you can get companies paid faster, if you can recapture lost revenue, you know, that's something that in any market, they want that kind of result. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this show before we end it out, where can they find you? You know, if they're interested in using liquid frameworks services for um, their company, where can they find you guys? What's, what's the website? Are you on LinkedIn, et cetera? Yeah. Don't come to the office right now. Cause no one's here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't stop by the office. Yeah. Don't stop by the office, but go to uh, www.liquidframeworks.com is the best place to go. And, you know, we have an annual user conference too. So, uh, we, we love when people want to come to that connect effects. We typically have when you guys in, do that. Yeah. It's typically it. in April, but we're, we're not going to do it in April. This, this year we did it virtually. So it was the first year we've done it virtually. This was year six. And so it's the first year we did it virtually. But next year we're thinking April, you know, I think we're going to be well into the vaccine and all this kind of good stuff by then. But, you know, there's probably still people that are a little bit gun shy and stuff. So we're going to push it out into uh, September timeframe next awesome. year. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to make everyone aware of that yeah. user conference when it goes. And so, yeah, if you guys want to check out Liquid Frameworks, make sure to hop on their website check out the user conference. Thanks for being on the show today, man. Yeah. This is super interesting. Thanks for having me. I really yep. enjoyed talking to you guys. Yep. Yeah, great chat, man. All right, guys, if you liked the episode, take two seconds, leave us a five-star review. Not you trolls leaving one-star reviews. We know who you are. We know who you are. Okay, just leave a five-star review. Send it to all your families and friends. Forward to all your colleagues. Catch you guys in the next episode. Whoa.